I remember watching Dawn of the Dead going, that's what I want to do. That to me feels like you're making a movie that it's so forbidden what you're doing. You can do anything. This is a movie with no rules. You can kill any character in any way you want. It was like anarchy. I remember watching that movie thinking, like, how can you get away with this? I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror's star creators. The terror begins right after this. This is Kurt Zanga, showrunner of Eli Roth's History of Horror. This episode of History of Horror Uncut features director, writer, producer, and actor Eli Roth. Eli's first film was 2002's Cabin Fever, a gleefully gory recombination of the DNA of the thousands of horror movies he devoured as a kid. Next came Hostel, the provocative film that inspired the term torture porn. Over the last decade, Eli has branched out into other genres, including crime, suspense, and the kid-friendly The House with the Clock in Its Walls, but horror is closest to his heart. I asked Eli to talk about the films that inspired him to become a director. As you'll hear, Eli's encyclopedic knowledge of and passion for the genre is second to none. It's the same enthusiasm that's infused in every episode of the History of Horror TV series. Let's start with David Lynch's Eraserhead. Why is that a landmark in horror and filmmaking in general? And tell me a little about your personal connection to it. Eraserhead really became one of the first cult movies, midnight movies. It played at the New Art for three years. And people would just go see it at midnight and just space out to it and dissect it and deconstruct it. And before the internet, there were like magazines, but there wasn't a place to really discuss this stuff. So you'd have to go see this movie over and over and discuss it with the people in the theater because no one understood it. This was David Lynch, this artist, coming out of AFI, and he spent five or six years making the movie. You know, he shot it for six years. He would do two shots a night. He would deliver the Wall Street Journal during the day, and they let him live there and just paint the set and... Everyone just kind of loved him and supported him. So he just had camera equipment and he had film and at Photochem, they would develop his process, the film for him. I mean, you have an artist who's obsessively making this movie. Every set is painted by him. And the movie comes out and people didn't know what to make of it. It wasn't narrative. It was this nightmare of parenthood, of living in this industrial machine world It's like as if David Lynch was the first director 
that I saw that filmed the unconscious and the subconscious. You know, he wasn't saying this is what the movie's about. There's just imagery and sound and mood and this lady in the radiator that he's singing to with these strange cheeks and this baby that looks so fake, but you care about it. And it's so grotesque and strange. And it looks like his paintings. It looks like his drawings. And I had the fortunate experience of helping David transfer Eraserhead for Blu-ray. And when I shot Cabin Fever, I actually gave my computer to him so he could have someone clean up Eraserhead frame by frame going through this before there was like high-tech ways of doing it. So I had an extra computer while I was shooting. I literally gave it to David to clean the racer out of my computer. I was that obsessed with the movie. Uh, it's this stark, brutal, terrifying black and white world where this guy goes to see his girlfriend, Mary X, and she says, you're the father of the baby, if it even is a baby. They don't even know what this thing is. And then there's this thing wrapped in these bandages, and he's just got to take care of this sick child and this horrible, bleak apartment. And you just think of what it must have been like for David having a child or his nightmare version of that. And it's a beautiful film. It's a film where he just, you know, he kills the child and goes into the radiator and is warmly embraced by the lady in the radiator. And she sings this song, in heaven, everything is fine. And it's so, it's weirdly warm and comforting and terrifying. It's, it's just, that's the only happiness that Henry has in his life. But it's this great performance by Jack Nance, who went on to say, she's dead, wrapped in plastic. But the image of him just staring, even before I knew what Eraserhead was, I knew that image, that shot where he's standing there in the, the pencil shavings. Now you went on a quest for Eraserhead. I got the negative. I got like what was close to the original negative as I could find. The negative got thrown up by his ex-wife and he had me find the trash man who picked it up and I had a record of him and we called the guy and I didn't know if the guy was lying and saying he remembered it. I got the address where he lived, where it would be, and we found out that the garbage at that time, I actually located roughly where in the garbage the original negative to Eraserhead was, because David was so obsessed with finding it. I found the trash man that picked up the trash that day in the time period that it would have been thrown out, the landfill where it would have gone and what would have happened to it. And now they put stuff in cement blocks, but at the time they shredded it. So all of those cans would have been shredded. And the guy had some story. He's like, yeah, I remember thinking this is a weird thing to throw out. That's why I remember it. Like, what are these film cans? But, you know, they, they shredded them. It's gone, sadly. And in fact, a year ago, David had me check again just to make sure. And I had all my notes from 1999 or 2000 where I talked to the garbage man who threw a razor head. And again, we called him and we got his wife and he got him on the phone and I got David in a conversation with him. I went crazy trying to find the eraser head negative. Trust me, I tried. And David still called me about with like weird requests for stuff. But I transferred a razor head so I could sit next to him and look at him and ask him questions. And I remember at the opening when you see Jack Fisk as the man on the planet and these fetuses are coming out and you just see Jack Nance's head. And I just said, David, is this a sex scene? He goes, Eli, you're not allowed to ask me questions. And he's like smoking his cigarette. I'm like, okay, okay. He wouldn't say a word. He wouldn't talk about anything. Even with me next to him, I wanted to get DVD commentary, which David completely does not believe in. Doesn't believe in explaining anything. I was sitting with him next to him 
with the interpositive, and I gave my computer to clean it just so I could get stories about Eraserhead, wouldn't say a word to me. So, you know, that's, that's the beauty of that movie, is that I overexplain a lot of things, but I understand the mystery. I understand the power of the mystery. Maybe I would do it differently. Maybe I'm a different generation that wants to explain everything as it's being done all the time. But I think one of the things that makes that movie so special is that it actually could exist. Visually, that movie is dazzling, and it sounds like nothing else before it. Eraser had changed sound design. Cabin Fever, all my films, I want the sound to be like Eraserhead. Not just the industrial landscape, the industrial nightmare, but just the idea that you could use sound to create a world. That was David Lynch. And it was Alan Splett, his sound designer, and David. And the two of them really put you in a universe. That's how you create the world. And all of those nightmare industrial sounds came into the factory and hostel, and the torture rooms, and the drones, and the hums. And I'd be somewhere with David, and there'd be this weird motor, and, he, and like he's like, stop, stop, stop. It's a parking lot. Go, we got to record that. And I'm like that too. I'm like, oh my God, parking lot, second floor, this building here, you need to record that motor. Like we hear strange sounds, and your first instinct is, I got to record this and use it in a movie. And David, for his website, for davidlynch.com, he did these industrial soundscapes. Beautiful. But he's so meticulous, the details, but he's also very open to happy accidents. You know, just if things happen, you just set it up. And if you're so focused, David Lynch gave me the best directing advice. He said, Eli, keep your eye on the donut, not the hole. The only thing that matters, the, the, the 24 frames per second, which was filmed at the time, that's the donut. The only thing people see is the information recorded in front of the camera. All the other crap, the backstabbing, the drama, the, that's the hole. And you can get sucked right into it if you're not careful. So I say that on all my movies to everyone, eye on the donut, not the hole. I was just, I'm producing a movie now. I was talking to the director. Eye on the donut, not the hole. And it's a way of like refocusing everyone going, oh yeah, we're here to make a movie. We're not here to get caught up in drama. We're featuring Eraserhead as part of a Chilling Children episode. And Lynch's next film, The Elephant Man, is uh, going to be in the body horror episode. And that's quite a jump from a zero-budget art house film to a big studio picture. It's amazing that David goes from Eraserhead to The Elephant Man. Because you see a direct line between the two movies. First in the beautiful black and white photography, incredible Freddie Francis photography. And David wanted to do the makeup on The Elephant Man. He did all the makeup in Eraserhead, and he tried to do it for The Elephant Man, and it just didn't work. And then they, they brought in someone to fix it. But it's really, it's a beautiful film. It's a haunting film. And David, you know, David, he was an Eagle Scout. He has this really sweet, Missoula, Montana sensibility about him. David is like a nice Midwestern boy who loves his parents and is terrified of the outside world. Like when he went to Philadelphia, he grew up in Eagle Scouts and clear skies and mountains and then went to this industrial nightmare. So he sees the underbelly. You know, look at that opening shot of Blue Velvet where you go under the grass, this plastic America and the red shiny fire truck and go under the grass and the beetles are all there. It's like represented in their clothing too. The clothing that Dennis Hopper's wearing, he looks like one of those beetles. So David Lynch was the first director that really made me aware of what a director can do. And I remember when I was 14, my father came back from the movies and see Blue Velvet. And he's like, I need to take you to see this because you need to understand like what, what's happening. You need to see who David Lynch is. And I saw Blue Velvet in the theaters and it's one of the movies that changed my life. I just had never seen clocks like that and cars like that and the images of the fire truck and the music and, the, and the, this perfect plastic America and the dark seedy underbelly and the ear being the link between the two worlds and this guy following this mystery and the 
kind of David Lynch uncanny noir. I just became hooked. But then when you go back and you rewatch Eraserhead and The Elephant Man, it's like he does Mulholland Drive and then The Straight Story. You know, David, if he wanted to, can make these incredible, beautiful PG or G-rated dramas. But I think he's just drawn and fascinated by the strange, dark, weird forces in America. You see that in Twin Peaks. All of his work feels like it is of a piece. It feels like the same movie connected through all of them. Going on to another film that inspired you to become a director, Dawn of the Dead. When did you first see it? I first saw Dawn of the Dead when VHS exploded. I remember renting Dawn of the Dead and the Evil Dead, and it was like the greatest weekend of my life. You know, it's one of those movies that even as a kid at 12 and 13 years old, there had been such hype about it. And I had a book called Film Tricks, which had frames of the head exploding. So my friend Jeff Rendell and I, the one I watched all my horror movies with, we sat there and we watched that movie and I got a second VCR. I borrowed a friend's VCR so I could dub the tape, so I could have a tape of it. Because I, I just wanted to watch it over and over and over and over. I, like, I had to copy the tape of Dawn of the Dead because it was just the greatest film I'd ever seen. And it was not a movie that played on cable. You had to rent it. So that first time I watched it, it, it just delivered the goods. And Dario Argento producing and this incredible score by Goblin. So there's something very Italian about the movie. Even though it's an American movie, that Goblin score gives it this otherworldly Italian feel, the same way that Pino Donaggio's music does in Carrie. When you hear that Italian score, they just think differently. Their musical sensibility is just different than Americans. It didn't feel like an American movie. And I also didn't understand the difference between low budget and big budget. You know, when you're a kid and you watch Star Wars or Dawn of the Dead, you just assume it all comes out of Hollywood. But there was something about that movie that just felt real, that just felt grainy, just felt dirty and different. And I couldn't understand what it was. I didn't understand 16 millimeter versus 35 millimeter or low budget versus big budget. It had this real homemade quality to it. I remember watching Dawn of the Dead going, that's what I want to do. I don't want to do those movies. I mean, I love those movies, but I want to do that. That to me feels like you're making a movie that it's so forbidden what you're doing. You can do anything. This is a movie with no rules. You can kill any character in any way you want. It was like anarchy. I remember watching that movie thinking, how can you get away with this? There was no rating. It was unrated. A rated X. Like, I remember watching that movie going, I-, I didn't know you could do this. I didn't know you were allowed to be that violent in a movie. I didn't know that that was accepted. I, I, th- I always thought there was someone cutting back on the violence. There was, yeah. Now, the same night you saw Dawn of the Dead, you saw another movie that really shaped you, The Evil Dead. The first time I saw Evil Dead, I was so terrified that I couldn't make it through the movie. And my friend Jeff and I, we had to stop and play Clue because that was our favorite game. That was the only thing that would take our mind off it. The Exorcist was the scariest movie I had seen. I was convinced I was going to get possessed by the devil. It traumatized me. It gave me nightmares. I couldn't sleep for two years because of that movie. This was like The Exorcist on steroids. It was like, it wasn't just one person possessed. It was five people possessed. It was the tape will swallow your soul. Everything about it was so scary. And you knew it from that opening shot. You knew it. Where all of a sudden, I didn't understand the graininess. I didn't understand low budget. I rented it because of the Stephen King quote on the box. And I thought, okay, Stephen King was scared by this. It's going to be scary. I was unprepared. Just for the energy of that film, 
it was the blood, the gore, the relentlessness. I just, if I thought Dawn of the Dead was anarchy, this was another level of chaos and insanity and craziness. And I just knew this is all I want to do in my life. I was like, I have to make a movie set in a cabin in the woods. Cabin Fever is entirely my homage to Evil Dead. I watched Evil Dead. I watched Mother's Day, Friday the 13th. I watched all of these movies structurally to break them down. But I put the swing outside the cabin and Cabin Fever for Evil Dead. I found a cabin that looked like Evil Dead. I, I changed it to look like Evil Dead. I mean, it's a film where what terrified me is you're there with your best friend, but then you have to kill your best friend because of this thing that's inside them. And you're not trying to kill your friend, you're trying to kill the thing that has taken over your friend. And that's what the disease became in Cabin Fever. You're with your best friend, but you've got to isolate them or you've got to kill them because whatever is inside them could get inside you. And suddenly you're not seen as a human anymore. And I think that there's something very real about that. You know, when lepers have leprosy, what do we do? We isolate them. When SARS happened, when there's disease you don't understand, tent them off. People want to get out, too bad. Epidemic, population control, can't let it get out. There's something really, really scary about that. Possession, losing control of your body. We all have disease, we all get illness, we've all had things happen to us where you almost died. And, you know, life is just a series of avoiding these like potholes of death that we could all fall into. But there's something about those possession movies and losing control of your body and the evil forces taking over, whether it's a metaphor for alcohol or drugs. There's something about it that's just terrifying. I mean, you have decapitations, the tree rape, the pencil stab. It was so transgressive. It was so shocking and violent and upsetting. And you could tell the actors were not comfortable. I mean, they're being dragged through the woods. The motorcycle rams into Bruce Campbell's mouth and breaks his teeth. I mean, it's, it was so innovative. Sam Raimi takes the insanity and the manic energy of the Three Stooges and puts it into a horror film. And he went out to make the scariest film ever made. And when I saw Evil Dead the first time, I was convinced this is it. I will never be as terrified in a movie as I am watching Evil Dead. That set the bar. I, I didn't think I could get scared like that again. That movie traumatized me and I became completely obsessed with it. And I was so excited for Evil Dead 2 that I begged my dad, I was 15, and it was unrated, so you had to be, or NC, you know, no one under 17 admitted. And I begged my dad for my birthday to take me, it was in one theater that was like an hour away, we drove there to see Evil Dead 2. And the guy at the theater goes, he's not 18. And my dad takes out his Harvard University like faculty card. He goes, I'm a professor of psychiatry at Harvard. I'm not a liar, my son is 18. And the guy's like, okay, okay. And like, I'll never forget that. My dad lying to get me in to Evil Dead 2. But Evil Dead, everything about it. I, of course, after I saw Evil Dead, I started reading about it in Fangoria. And I thought, oh my God, Sam Raimi was 21 when he made this. And I'm like 12 or 13 at the time. I'm like, that's not that far away. The idea that you could go off into the woods with a camera and five of your friends and some fake blood and come back with Evil Dead. I was like, I didn't know that was possible. That was mind blowing. I was like, I'm doing that. That's what I'm going to do. I'm writing a cabin horror movie. I'm going to go out there and make it as crazy and weird and sick as possible. And I'm going to come back with my evil dead. It was completely calculated. I was like, I want to make a cabin in the woods horror movie. And it hadn't been, like, I hadn't seen them since Evil Dead. Like, I, I missed it or since Evil Dead too. So 
that movie was the movie that made me realize that I could be a director. Before then, whether it was Star Wars or Jaws or Steven Spielberg, I was this kid in Boston in a basement watching horror movies on VHS. Like, how do I get from the video store to that? It was such a leap. It was like incomprehensible of like, well, you have to know people. Do you need connections? Do I have to live in California? Do I have to go to one of these special schools? Do I have to be rich? Like, I didn't understand it. And then I saw Evil Dead and I went, okay, I can do this. This I can do. I can do something low budget. I can raise the money. I can get money from family and friends. I can get a bunch of actors I know. I'm going to do that. Like from 12 years old, that was my goal is I am going to make Evil Dead. And for me, it was the movie, like in the way that the next generation watched the Blair Witch Project and went, all right, I can do this too. I can shoot a movie in the woods with my friends and it can get released in theaters. That's what Evil Dead was for me. Another big influence, Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre was such a part of pop culture by the time I was 10, 11, 12 years old that I thought there's no way it's going to live up to the hype. It's like, I've been disappointed because my mom told me House of Wax was the scariest movie ever. She saw it when she was eight. It was not. I loved it. It was not scary. Even Psycho, I liked it, but I wasn't petrified. I remember renting Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and it was like a movie that was made by serial killers. It was like everything in it was real. First, it was way less gory than I thought it was going to be. I, I expected it to be a splatter fest, which is actually what Pieces turned out to be. It's strange because I, I remember renting Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Pieces because I wanted to see the two Chainsaw movies. And I was watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre waiting for the gore. And I loved it. And you're getting it in forms you don't expect, like Pam getting thrown on the meat hook. It's the best example of sound tricking your mind into thinking you've seen something you haven't seen. You know, most of the gore in Texas Chainsaw Massacre is off camera. You know, you see Kirk get smashed with the sledgehammer and you do see the chainsaw land on Leatherface's leg and there's that bit of meat that carves up. But most of it is mood and atmosphere. And when she gets hung on the hook, she doesn't die instantly. You just see her trying to grab it going, ah, ah, ah. It's, it was one of the most haunting images I'd seen in film. I was very fortunate that I got to become friends with Toby Hooper and talk to him about it. And he told me that that movie was basically just a $60,000 flare he was sending up from Austin. The Norman Rockwell America was gone and next door neighbors, you're living next to the Manson family. It's a combination of Ed Gein and Charles Manson and the violence from Vietnam. There's just this explosion in this movie. And Toby Hooper really makes an art film. I mean, if you look at his first film, Eggshells, it's cut similar, the way he uses sound design. It's, like, it's kind of like an acid trip horror film. But they're shooting this movie in the 120 degree heat. And they're shooting it in Austin with these local actors, none of whom you've seen before. And they're shooting it on 16 millimeter. And it just feels real. And the way they move the camera in that film, the way he sets with the dolly, the swing shot, being one of the most iconic shots that I imitated in Cabin Fever. I literally put Serena Vincent and I did, okay, this is my Texas Chainsaw Massacre shot. I remember watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre and I had the videotape, you know, you rent it, you get it for two days. I watched as many times as I could and I took it with me to school and I told my science teacher that I had it with me and he opened up the AV room 
And we sat and we watched the last 10 minutes of Texas Chainsaw Massacre together. And kids from school like, what are you doing? And they're like, I'm just watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre with Mr. Babke. Don't mind. He was like, yeah, we're watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It was so forbidden at the time to do that. But I loved it. I mean, there was an Atari game of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It was that mainstream. But I remember the movie. I really, really loved Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which was a satire. The poster of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is the same poster as The Breakfast Club. So that was like the sequel I've been waiting my whole life for. But that first Texas Chainsaw Massacre, just the acting, I mean, just the way when Jerry gets smashed on the head and they slam the door, that sound design, that music, I think it's Arky Blue that did the music, the, the music, the sound design, it was so disturbing. I remember the opening credits of Cabin Fever. I used a lot of buzzing. I used a lot of insects. It starts off with nice sounds of nature and then the screen begins to rot and the sound design begins to rot. Very, very influenced by Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, when you hear these sounds and the buzzing, the cicadas and the cemetery and the solar flares and those opening credits, the way the sound design is, it's like a racer head. There's such mood to the opening five minutes of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. By the time you're on that shot of the grave, the sun coming up in the cemetery, it's just wrong. It's, you're already uncomfortable. And then you see them in the van and you just know they're headed for no good. Moving on to another famous chainsaw movie you found in VHS, Pieces. Juan Piquer Simon's Mil Gritos Tien La Noches, A Thousand Screams of the Night, released here as Pieces. Pieces is one of the greatest WTF horror films of all time. I mean, this is a movie that just defies, for me, it might be my favorite horror movie of all time after all these years, because it just defies every rule of what you're supposed to do. It is so insane. It is so absurd. It is so over the top that if you put it on with a room of people, you will guarantee to have the whole audience come out of it and go, that's the best movie I've ever seen. I actually get sad watching someone else watch it for the first time because I'm jealous of them. Pieces is the ultimate grindhouse horror movie. Uh, it's directed by a Spanish director named Juan Piquer Simon, although it was released in the U.S., as directed by J.P. Simon. But Simon's a very interesting director. He's one of the only, he was an openly gay director. And knowing that, you can see a lot of issues he's working out with pieces where there's a jigsaw puzzle and the crotch of the naked woman is the last piece to go in. His mother catches him. His mother catches a boy putting together a jigsaw puzzle and she gets very, very angry because the father had left her and she sees the son becoming like the father. So she starts throwing out all the trash in the room, throwing out this, and in a very, very dramatic telenovela way, she throws out everything in his room and turns around and he has an ax with a gleeful expression. He just smashes her, he just bashes her head in with the ax. Of course, the police show up and then he pretends that a bad man did it and he's sent away. And then we cut to a college campus years later where a girl is roller skating and a plate glass goes by with these movers and she smashes into it. And somehow the plate glass smashing triggers the killer to go on a rampage, chopping up different women and saving their body pieces, making a human jigsaw puzzle. Now, there are several human jigsaw puzzle movies. There's another film called Torso, which does a lot with body parts, cutting up body parts, dolls, it's connected to dolls. But the human jigsaw puzzle, what's fascinating about pieces is 
First, the deaths are so over the top. I remember as a kid watching, there was so much lore about Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a kid. It's, it's such a cultural touchstone that people haven't even seen it, won't see it because it's called the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You expect people to get massacred with a chainsaw. Well, the scariest death in that movie is when the girl gets put on the meat hook, not the chainsaw. The chainsaw is real. Leatherface cuts himself. Franklin gets it, but a lot of it is in the shadows. A lot of it's off camera. It's essentially a bloodless movie. Pieces delivers the goods. I mean, the poster said, it's exactly what you think it is. The other tagline was, you don't have to go to Texas for a chainsaw massacre. Apparently, you just get it in Massachusetts or Spain where they shot it. The movie stars Ian Sarah as the good-looking Kendall Morgan. He's the campus stud. He's referred to as the campus stud. And he's kind of having sex with all these different girls who keep getting killed off. Weirdly, he's never a suspect. They then deputize him to help them find who the killer is. And they use the beautiful tennis star played by Linda Day George, whose husband, Christopher George. They were kind of this amazing screen pair. Christopher George is her husband. He's the grizzled cop. They pair up with Ian Sarah. They deputize him. They're going to go on this college campus and find this killer. As a kid, I didn't know that Ian Sarah was a Spanish actor. You think he's just some American actor. But there's a scene where he's walking and is randomly attacked by a guy with kung fu. It makes absolutely no sense. There's, the movie just has scenes that are so insane. First, the killer has real issues with women because he comes in with a chainsaw as a giant phallic symbol. I mean, there's literally shots of a girl naked swimming in a pool and the shadow of the guy comes in and it's like he's holding the chainsaw literally right at his crotch before he cuts her up. They have these beautiful Spanish girls that always get naked right before they're chopped. But this is the movie where they show the gore. You see the the chainsaw cutting right into the flesh. There's a scene that's particularly disturbing. This girl's had tennis practice, and she goes into the locker room, and the killer starts chasing her. And he finally chases her into a stall, and he's revving the chainsaw, and you can see this girl, and the thing goes right through the door. And it's not fake. Like, you know they said, yeah, just stand a little this way. One, one inch the wrong direction, this girl actually really would have gotten her head split open with a chainsaw. It cuts right through the door, it shows her in the corner, and then it cuts to a shot of her crotch, and she pisses herself. And it's the most disturbing shot in a movie. I'm like, this isn't fun anymore. The movie crosses the line where you're watching, and you're like, oh, this is fun, this is fun. Oh, I didn't know, oh, that's, that's awful. Like, she really pees her pants and her sweatpants, and then the saw just cuts right through it, cuts her arm off, cuts right through her flesh. There's also a scene where a girl gets in an elevator. It's got all the classic tropes of slasher movies, but it's obviously shot in Europe because it's one of those cagey elevators, the kind you'd never see in America. And it's this big, and the killer gets in, and he's got a chainsaw hidden behind his back. And she doesn't notice. And she's like, oh, hello, sir. Nice to see you. And he doesn't say anything. He stops the elevator. She's like, what's going on? And then he pulls out the chainsaw, revs it up. She goes, no! And her arms go flying. Simone is having so much fun with the movie. These extras come in like circus clowns and they have a stretcher and they have to literally like put a leg on it. Like extras that don't know what to do with body parts and put them like, and then take, take them away. And the cops are trying to find the killer and Christopher George is playing this grizzled cop. He's saying like, I'm up a tree with this guy. Ah, I'll give you a lollipop if you find out. And he's like, I wonder who could have done this. And he turns around and then there's all the suspects. There's Paul L. Smith as Willard, the gardener who's giving the stink eye the entire movie. Paul L. Smith, the whole time, played Bluto and Popeye. He's like, mm, all right. Like, he plays literally that emotion the entire movie. Ian Sarah's looking around. There's a gay character who, the dean, played by Evan Purden, says, Professor Brown is a homosexual. Almost like you can't trust him, which is interesting because it was a gay director. I've met people that were in contact with him. He's unfortunately passed away and said he was like a very, very funny guy and a great guy. But Simone's movie, at the end of the film, the police catch the killer and... They're about to leave, and they open the door, 
and the body falls out. And you realize this guy's been making a human jigsaw puzzle. And it's like, it's an incredible shock moment. It's just one of those great slow motion things of this incredible prop of the human body with all the different people we've seen killed. And then at the very end, Ian Sarah comes back because he forgot his coat and the hand of the body comes out and just rips his genitals off. Just grabs him and just pulls his dick right off. And the movie ends on him screaming, ah, ah, as the hand of the dead body just rips right through his crotch and emasculates him. Now, I always wrote pieces off as just like a garbage slasher movie. And then I watched it with Tarantino and a friend of his. And she goes, no, 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 this movie's brilliant. And his friend Ada broke, pieces breaks down like this. You can watch the movie on one level and go, this is a grade Z slasher movie with some of the most fun kills. It's totally over the top ridiculous in every single way. And it's absolute garbage. Or you could say, this is a subversive work of art by a master director who's making a comment on this character Kendall Morgan, the campus stud, who uses women like pieces of meat. And that the movie is about him having sex with these girls and just discarding them, which happens all throughout the film. He walks out of bed and they're going, Kendall, come back, come back, I need you. And he just throws them away. He has sex with girls and tosses them aside. These girls are then killed. And the body is the residual anger, the anger of these girls and the resentment of these girls of being used by this guy. All boils up and they castrate him at the end of the movie. So it's a movie about a guy who uses women like pieces of meat, and he gets what he deserves at the end. The Wicker Man from 1973. That's a pretty amazing movie. The Wicker Man has the reputation for being the greatest British horror film of all time. And it was one of those movies I didn't see until late in life because I would look at the video box and go, what's scary about a Wicker Man? It seemed like the Gollum, or it just just seemed like a stale movie to me. And I finally saw it, and it's one of those movies that changed my life. The unfortunate thing about The Wicker Man is that it was remade and Nicolas Cage starred in it, and it's not one of his best performances. I love Nicolas Cage, but everyone knows the bees, not the bees, because of memes, because of YouTube. When you say The Wicker Man, I have to go, no, 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 not the 2006 Wicker Man. It's not that one. It's not the Nicolas Cage one. It's the original one. They created a score for this movie that are folk songs that are integral to this island that tell the story of their religion and their culture. So you're watching it, and it starts to become a horror musical. There, there are moments where they're singing, but all of the singing is tied to the scenes. They're not breaking into song and music. They're at a pub they sing. They're all singing in a, a ritual. It's all done because of this religion, and it's a very, very subversive sexual movie. The lyrics of these songs are so... Everything's a double entendre, and everything's sexual. And it's about this very, very religious man who's a virgin, who's going to get married before he has sex, who goes to this island off the coast of Scotland where a girl has disappeared. And he has to investigate the disappearance. And of course, what he doesn't know is that he is the object that they're looking for. But he goes there and he's completely outraged because everyone is so sexual. And there's people, they're having sex out in the fields, out in the open, their belief of death. Everything goes completely counter to what he believes. The island of Summer Isle, it's so real, the details of it, 
the masks that they wear. They're having this huge harvest celebration. And to this date, I don't, I don't think that movie is matched. I mean, there's a scene where they're all singing about the landlord's daughter, played by Britt Eklund. And they're like, and nothing can delight so except the path that doth lie between her left toe and her right toe. They're like, everyone in the pub is singing about having sex with this girl, and the dad's there and she's laughing. Then, you know, Sergeant Howie, played by Edward Woodward, he can't believe this. He can't believe that they're singing these sexual lyrics with this girl, who, this girl Willow, who he, of course, gets completely seduced by. You know, she's like pounding on his door, this, this incredible sexy dance by Britt Eklund. And there she sings songs like How a Maid Can Milk a Bull and Every Stroke a Bucket Full. It's like, every, you can't, the stuff, I'm like, did I just hear that? I love The Wicker Man so much that I wanted to make The Wicker Man when I made Hostel. Hostel was very much influenced by Audition, but really by The Wicker Man. And in fact, when the girls seduce the guys, in the sex scene, I used an updated version of one of the songs from Wicker Man. Will Willow's song was done in the song How Do by the Sneaker Pimps. And they actually sample the movie and then go into their own version. So I that was my nod to the Wicker Man was using the Sneaker Pimps version of Willow's song. But it comes from the Wicker Man. But Christopher Lee has this incredible... Christopher Lee, it's one of his best performances. Most people know him from Lord of the Rings and Dracula. But really, as Lord Summerisle, he's incredible. It's just this powerful voice in charge. He's the leader of this religion. And he's so, like, happy through it. That's what's what's also odd about it being a Christopher Lee performance. Through the whole thing, Lord Summerisle is just this big smile on his face. Yeah, he's very charming. Lord Summerisle is not this evil, dark character. And when Sergeant Howie goes to his house, he's he's singing a piano duet with his girlfriend, and they're singing the song about a tinker and a maiden and how her bucket was filled with holes from so much nailing and the holes were now getting too big for any nail to plug and how his nail is big enough to plug any hole she has. I mean, and he's just standing there listening to this and they're laughing, you know, patching and plugging is his delight. His work goes forward day and night. I became obsessed with this movie. It's interesting, the, the, the Wicker Man was a lost movie. It came out in 1973 and it was a bomb, but over the years, People have rediscovered it and started to appreciate it for what it was. And then Empire Magazine put it as the number one British film, horror film of all time. The soundtrack was like dumped over some overpass and left in the ground and some construction workers found it and they realized these were the tapes. Like there's some crazy story about that music. Like even the music was thrown away and then literally rediscovered later. You know, but Robin Hardy made one of the greatest horror films of all time. It is such an oddity. It was so of its time. And you believe it. And that's one thing I always try to do in my films. If I'm ever going to depict a society, whether it's House of the Clock and its Walls or Green Inferno or Hostel or depicting a world, you have to have every detail of that world figured out. I mean, the world creation in The Wicker Man and in Cannibal Holocaust is so complete that you feel like we are getting a glimpse into a society. This is a real functioning society. Very few directors have pulled that off in movies. My horror films, on some level, always deal with the clash of culture. You know, it's the city kids going to the country. It's the college kids that are going to mix with Slovakia. It's the, you know, the do-gooder social justice warriors going into the jungle. And where, you know, what happens when those two cultures clash? And The Wicker Man is about that. It's about the clash of religion and this, the fanatical belief and what people will do when they believe what they're doing is right. What is totally normal to one person is absolutely terrifying to another. And I think there's something very real about that. You know, I think that the reason the Wicker Man has such staying power is you look at this cult that believes that 
burning and sacrificing a virgin is going to bring back the crops. That makes perfect sense to them. To this other person, it's absolutely insane because everything he believes is from a Christian perspective. And these are coming from a pagan perspective. And you look at the clash today, you have you know, people in America, not only there's clashes between Christianity and Muslim and Judaism, but you look at the extremism, the extremist beliefs that people believe they're cutting off someone's head, what they're doing is right, that that makes sense to them. You know, you look at the people that, suicide bombers, you look at ISIS, that fanatical belief of ISIS clashing with the beliefs of freedom and democracy and religion that we have in America, that people are gonna make women slaves and subservient and other, it's just, it's, that it's okay to light homosexuals on fire. I mean, this, it's ideas that are so horrifying to us that we think what would happen if we got there and there was just this mis misunderstanding. You think you can go there and explain it to them and go, this is crazy. This doesn't lead to anything. This is just an excuse for power and torture. And they're going, no, but you're crazy. Having all those freedoms are crazy. Letting women drive is crazy. And that what happens when you mash those cultures together, that's such a human thing. It's such an eternal thing. And that's why when you look at the Wicker Man, it doesn't feel dated. The themes of the Wicker Man feel as relevant 45 years later because of what's going on in the world, because of human nature. The clash of culture is what makes these movies interesting. The culture's clashing, the clash of values that I eat food in a restaurant and I eat a person when they invade my village. That's what makes sense to me. And what happens when you put those two together? That's why these movies have staying power. There's something in them that is so real and so relevant to what we feel today that it doesn't matter that the technology is dated or that the music feels different or that the clothes are, are old fashioned. There's something about that idea of what would happen to me if I was in that situation. And people have been in that situation. I remember the first time I went into the South and I saw Confederate flags and I thought, oh man, I hope they don't realize I'm a Jew. They hadn't done anything wrong. Nothing bad had happened, but I just got that uneasy feeling that this might be a strange conversation. Or sometimes you, you meet someone who is a neo-Nazi and you're thinking, okay, what's gonna happen when they find out? It's just clash of culture. What's a giallo film? And how did Dario Argento's The Bird with the Crystal Plumage change the landscape of international horror? The Jallo films started in Italy after the Spaghetti Westerns. There were these crime films in Germany in the early 60s that were very popular in Italy. And in Italy, people read these crime thrillers, these kind of pulp paperback thrillers that all had this one label that did them, and they were a yellow cover and a circular image. I mean, these are like pulp dime store books that you get. The cover was yellow, and then there'd be a piece of artwork with a circle that kind of told you what the story was of a murderer breaking in, or someone on vacation, or someone in a house. And people started adapting them. I mean, the first Jallo films were really done by Mario Bava. I mean, he starts you know, with Black Sunday, but it's really Blood and Black Lace, Six Women for the Assassin, which is a beautiful film set at a fashion show. And it was very, very stylistic and very moody, and the lighting and the way they were shot and the, the contrast of these. It was often these beautiful young women murdered by a gloved killer because they didn't want to reveal if it was male or female. 
with a knife penetrating the women, the stiletto penetrating women. That was the most common mode of giallo. Ernesto Gastelli wrote most of them, so there were certain tropes you had to follow for it to be a giallo. You had to have red herrings. You had to be guessing who the killer was the whole movie. The killer had to wear gloves. The killer, you know, there had to be some kind of twist at the end that doesn't break the logic of the movie. You can't just randomly decide one of them's the killer. It's got to really pay off in a smart way. Dario Argento rewrites the rules with The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. It is his first movie, and it is such a sensation that it becomes an international hit. You know, you have Tony Massante, and he's in Italy, and he witnesses a murder, and someone is trapped between these glass doors that he can't open. And you're watching it, and it's almost like a murder in an art museum. I mean, the photography is so beautiful. Also cut with this, like, la, la, la. There's, there's this sing-song quality to the music, to the Morricone score that you see used over and over and later in his film, certainly in Profondo Rosso and Deep Red. But you're seeing this, like, the photography and the killer's lair and the tools laid out and the black gloves and then picking up the tools and the spying and following a woman in a bookstore walking home. I mean, all of these things, it became so iconic, but... Bird with the Crystal Plumage really announces the era of the modern horror film. You can look at it before that movie and after. I mean, Psycho changes everything, but it's still a black and white movie. Bird with the Crystal Plumage, it's such a bizarre title. You don't really understand what it means until the end of the movie. The title certainly gives it the mood. It's not a title you easily forget. It's a sticky title, but it's just not words. Crystal Plumage, it's just a strange phrasing. Enough to get you go, what is that movie? But... The image, the hand, the gloved hand of the woman screaming, the knife, it's got all of the signature things from Argento. I mean, this fantastic score by Morricone, the, the black gloved killer that most of the time was Dario Argento's hands because it had to be done right, penetrating the victim with a knife, but very, very stylish. You know, the Jallo films weren't meant to be these quick, sleazy movies that part of what makes a Jallo, whether it's Death Walks on High Heels, or even kind of trashier ones like Strip Nude for Your Killer, they have this fantastic, fantastic camera work. There were ones that were directed by Antonio Margareti, uh, my namesake from Inglorious Bastards. Uh, Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye is an incredible movie and technically fantastic. I mean, they're shooting these movies in 10 and 14 and 12 days, a lot of them in these old houses, these old villas, incredibly moody, stylish camera work. But the colors, those Argento colors and the color of the blood and the penetration and the violence and the way the murders just go on and on, they're not quick murders. They go on and on and each one is more elaborate than the next. And of course, there's the reveal where you think you have the killer and then you realize who the killer really is and your star is either going to get out of it or they're not. It really set the tone. Like, Bird with a Crystal Plumage was such a big hit that everybody started making Jallo films. Then you see the stylish ones from Sergio Martino, Strange Vice and Mrs. Ward, All the Colors of the Dark. You see Lucio Fulci's Una Salatra, uh, one on top of the other, but really Lizard in a Woman's Skin, Don't Torture a Duckling. All of these movies that start dealing with themes of religion, oppression in society, all the fascism, Italy in the 70s, all of, all of this stuff is coming out in the Jallo films. There's this incredible explosion. And what Bird with the Crystal Plumage does is it sets the template for American horror to come in years later with Halloween. Now, Black Christmas, Mario Bava in 1971 makes the first POV slasher movie with a film called Bay of Blood, which was also released as Twitch of the Death Nerve. Bob Clark takes that for Black Christmas, the POV. 
he was going to make a movie called Black Halloween. It was going to be black, you know, it's going to do all these different holidays. John Carpenter does a movie called The Babysitter Murders, which they later changed the title to Halloween. But he takes it from Bob Clark and Mario Bava, the floating camera POV, and it explodes. So there's kind of a back and forth between American and Italian films. What did the Italians add to the mix? There's a very direct lineage between American and Italian cinema. Italians wanted to make Westerns. Americans did the Westerns, and Italians wanted to imitate them, so they did the spaghetti Westerns. But they innovated with on-screen violence and with electric guitar. Sergio Carbucci, Sergio Leone, you're seeing bloodshots. That was not allowed in American movies. You were not allowed to show a gunshot explode. But the Italians, they didn't have those rules. So you see Corbucci and Leone, and all of a sudden, kids in America want to watch that. They want the Clint Eastwood Westerns. They, want, they don't want the old, stiff Alan Ladd Westerns anymore. They don't want Shane. They don't want the quiet America. They, they want, you know, good, the bad, and the ugly. They, you know, they want Capaneros. They, they want Sergio Corbucci and, and Clint Eastwood movies for a few dollars more. So... Then what happens is a lot of those writers, after the spaghetti westerns fell out of fashion, Dario Argento, Lucio Fulci, all of these guys went over into writing Jalos. But they cut their teeth on spaghetti western. Now, meanwhile, in 1968, America catches up and Sam Peckinpah goes, wait, I want to do that. And he makes The Wild Bunch. So all of a sudden you have this modern violence in these filmmakers like Scorsese, De Palma, Peter Bogdanovich, so the film brats come in and you have these young filmmakers, Bob Rafelson, that are making movies that deal with like adult themes and ver- that of violence. You have that Scorsese violence, the Palma violence. Then the Italians start making Jallo films, kind of from 1970. It starts with Mario Baba, but it really takes off 1970. Bird with the Crystal Plumage, you know, all through the decade. While the Americans see what's going on in Italy, about five years later, they're like, okay, let's do our version of that, and that's the slasher boom of the late 70s, kind of 1978 to 1983-84. So if you really like American slasher films, there is a whole treasure chest of movies that you can go back and check out. I mean, there were hundreds of Jallos made. I'm still going through them. They're, they're, they're endless. And a lot of them are very similar. Now, you've got to accept the dubbing. The dubbing is part of it. Just accept it as an aesthetic. Like when you listen to an old vinyl and you hear crackle, that's part of it. When you hear the Beatles, those are the instruments they had. That's it. That was the technical limitation at the time. Mussolini, in fascism, when he built Chinichita Studio, it was illegal to record sync sound because people didn't want anti-government messages getting out. So in Fellini's movies, he had the actors count to 10 and they would dub it there. And when you dubbed your movie, there was a government official making sure you weren't saying anything anti-government. So you had to be very subversive about how you got anti-fascist propaganda into your movie. What happened was people just got used to it. And it really wasn't until the 90s and I think 2000s when Gangs of New York filmed in Italy that they soundproofed the stage because there was no need to because everyone was dubbing everything. So you can't look at it as a movie that was badly dubbed. You just have to accept that as one of the tropes of the time. Also, these movies were made in Europe with actors speaking English and then being redubbed by American actors. So a lot of the times the lips don't match. And if you can get past that, the rewards are so incredible. The movies are so enjoyable. The way they're photographed, the the music, the lighting, the photography. No one had done violence in such an elegant way before Dario Argento. And he continued it to one-up himself in Deep Red, but really in Suspiria. In Suspiria, he just goes next level visually on every every set piece, one after another. He doesn't even care about logic anymore or the flow. You just get into this kind of Dario Argento dream logic. But Bird with a Crystal Plumage, I think, is the movie that influences De Palma. 
Absolutely. Dress to Kill is so clearly indebted. Yeah, you look at Dress to Kill and you look at Bird with a Crystal Plumage, you could put the movies on top of each other. One is done in 1970 and one is done in 1980. You know, Argento's doing it first. You mentioned De Palma. Was he an influence on you? Brian De Palma, to me, was one of the most important directors of my childhood. And I remember seeing Scarface in the theater, and it blew my mind. Even though Scarface now really feels like an Oliver Stone film as well, with that incredible screenplay he wrote. And most people don't realize that Oliver Stone wrote Scarface, but it's the combination of the two and Pacino's performance that make it so iconic. But I love De Palma's very influenced by Italian giallo films. That's why he's using... Pino Donaggio in Carrie. De Palma is taking music from the Italian horror movies of the early 70s, and he's putting it into an American movie. You know, George Lucas is using John Williams. Other directors that are doing horror, they're using American composers. But De Palma's using Pino Donaggio. Now, Donaggio had done a lot of work in Italy. He'd done spaghetti westerns, he'd done giallos, but he's a very specific composer. It feels like a mix of Bernard Herrmann from Psycho and the Morricone scores from the Argento Jallos. So you have these influences coming in. It's like De Palma comes in, he's taking Polanski, Hitchcock, Bernard Herrmann, Argento, Italian cinema, and he's putting it all into American movies. And people hadn't seen anything like it. Dressed to Kill, I remember seeing that, you know, the, the split screen scene where he's watching Donahue and getting dressed and Michael Caine and... Angie Dickinson, I remember as a kid watching that movie, and it, it does have this dreamlike quality where she meets this man and they're having sex, and then she finds this vial, this little bottle with the pills, and you're like, oh, gosh, like, what? It's just, you know, nothing good is going to happen. And the, the shower scenes, I mean, he's got this incredible mix of Alfred Hitchcock and Dario Argento. But his use of long takes really... The scene I remember the most is the television where Donahue is interviewing someone and Michael Caine is watching it and the psychiatrist is watching it and just, just the, the lighting, the way it's photographed. And as a kid, split screen used to drive me crazy. You're like, what am I supposed to watch? What am I supposed to watch? But you just sort of give over to it and you're just watching this thing happen and it absorbs in your brain. It's really, it's got a very, very interesting effect on the audience. I tried to do a montage. I've really tried to do a montage like that in Death Wish of Bruce Willis taking bullets out of people and then putting bullets into a target. So it was all influenced by De Palma. And then, of course, body double with the voyeurism, the drill going right through the stomach. You know, De Palma, every one of his movies, he was pushing the envelope and people attacked him for hating women. I mean, it, it, it was bad in Scarface, but it really got taken to the next level with a drill scene in body double. And as someone who made a movie where people attacked me for killing female characters, I, I understood it. So I would go back and reread, you know, all of De Palma's old interviews or Carpenter's interviews. Carpenter was called a pornographer of violence after the thing. That's why he made Starman. And trust me, I've been there. I mean, part of the thing is when you're making a movie that pushes buttons, it's fun to be the one going like, ha you know, like zinging everybody. And then you cross a line and then you're attacked and you're like, 
oh yeah, okay, <laughs> maybe, maybe I went too far. But obviously, if you want to be a provocateur and you want to provoke people, you're going to get, the, you can't be surprised when you get that reaction. Well, he's making a social satire about sex and violence and filmmaking. And it seems like when he was attacked for it, he reacted by just turning the dial up. The violence of Dress to Kill he then, you know, it's like it's Blowout. Blowout was was a controversial movie when that came out. I've talked with Tarantino about that. And you look at the credits of Blowout and the credits of Reservoir Dogs, and they're identical. And that opening, I mean, just the idea of a sound editor was so cool. I didn't know what that was. So I remember watching Blow Up, and then I know Blowout is his kind of, you know, homage to Blow Up, except using audio. But just the way it's photographed. And the love theme from Blowout, Tarantino used it in Death Proof. That Pino Dinaggio music, it's its really beautiful. It's really sad. It's kind of a heartbreaking movie. But the Nancy Allen performances in the De Palma films are just, she's an incredible, incredible actor. Really incredible. You know, you're watching, it's, it's a joy to go back and watch all these films. It's great when a director has a relationship with an actor and you can watch all the stuff they've done together years later. Look, I did it, you know, with Lorenza Izzo. We, we did Aftershock together and then Hemlock Grove and... Green Inferno, Knock Knock, and you go back and you look at sort of your body of work together when you find that actor that captures that thing that you're trying to express, you just want to work with them over and over and over until you're kind of done or grow apart. Why do you think there's such a negative reaction to the deaths of the women in Hostel 2 and not to the deaths of the men in the first Hostel? I always said to people, what, you weren't upset when I killed the boys in the first one? And I try to keep score. I try to keep it even. Guys to girls. I like try to have an evil playing field. Of, of, try to have an even playing field. I said evil. An even playing field of guy to girl murders. But you just react more strongly when a woman is killed. You know, men go off to war. Men are killed, men get in fights, men are violent. So when a man is stabbed, it's something we're more used to. But when a woman is killed, it's shocking because men can physically overpower women. So there's something already inherently charged about killing a female character. But most girls I know, I mean, if you look at the biggest audience for slasher films are women. And I've asked girls, like, why would you want to watch that? Why are you obsessed with serial killers? And it's like, oh, because I want to know what to do. Girls are watching slasher films from a completely different perspective. They want to know how to get out of that situation. When they're in their house and the killer breaks in and trying to kill them, they love it when a girl can outsmart the killer. Oh, I can use that. Oh, I can use that. That's what I'm going to do. They're just watching it as preparation in case it happens. And when you can watch a female character really earn it and overpower, for male and female audiences, it's satisfying. But girls love it. Most critics are so afraid of people thinking that they endorse the violence that's in the movie that they don't want to support the movie. You know, they'll come out against Body Double. Uh, and they would say it's a brilliant performance by Melanie Griffith or one of, you know, De Palma's best films or an incredible thriller, any of that. They'll say, this movie kills women, it's bad. Because they're so afraid of their audience thinking, oh, you like that sort of thing? Are you sick? Well, let's look in your closet. So what I've noticed that most critics of these movies, it's a confessional about themselves. They're just getting on a soapbox to say, I'm a good person, I'm a good person. It has nothing to do with the movie. And I saw the difference in probably the worst reviews I got. Well, people went after Hostel, but Hostel 2 they went after with a vengeance. And there were some critics that really, really came. My biggest supporters, it was like Diablo Cody, 
Brett Easton Ellis, you know, Jordan Peele, like people now that like, no, 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 there's great things, but a lot of women came out and supported it and said, no, this is a feminist film. So I just try to make movies for audiences. You can't control what people are going to say, what people are going to think, but violence is so out of our control and so scary. It's so scary to think really how out of control things are. And I don't mean crazy out of control. I mean that we, we can't do anything to stop violence that when a violent movie comes out, people go, oh, we can stop that. It's something we can tangibly stop. Even though intellectually we know it's not going to change anything. Banning violent movies isn't going to ban violence. It's just going to make people frustrated. Movies are just a reflection of the violence. No one kills because they watch horror movies. They kill for a number of factors. You know, for like, they were humiliated, they were abused, they hate people, they're a sociopath. They, they want some kind of, you know, they kill animals and it moves on to killing people. You know, people don't just get the idea from a movie and do it. There has to be something already broken in there from the family, you know, at, at, at that level. But it is interesting that De Palma, De Palma became such a lightning rod for violence that I think by the end of the 80s, he just kind of had it. He just had it. And then Bonfire of the Vanities comes out and that movie turns into a bomb and it's a critical mess and it loses a lot of money that you basically took one of our best auteurs and filmmakers, and I think that the critics just used him as a punching bag, and I think he just got tired of it. I get it. I mean, everywhere you go, if people are like, you're horrible, you hate women, it's like, what do you, what do you want from me? I mean, then he does Mission Impossible. I mean, the guy's made so many great movies, and the performances by women, the roles he gives are so superb, but people just focus on that, that one moment of violence. I always say that blood stains your eyes. Blood stains the viewer's eyes. Like, if I kill someone in Green Inferno, that 90 seconds or two minutes of violence, it's like the red gets in and that's all they see. They don't see anything else in the movie. There's no photography or acting or story or character or dialogue or music. It's just gore. And that's okay. Because when you see an image that's shocking, it's supposed to be shocking. You're not supposed to just watch it and then move on to something else. It's really only after the second and third and fourth viewing that once you kind of become inured to the violence, then you can appreciate other things about, about the movie and the other great things about the movie rise to the surface. You know, if you can get through Cannibal Holocaust and you can watch a version without the animal killings or the violence, you see some of the most incredible, incredible filmmaking ever. When I watch Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals, you go, how did they do this? I, I just watched these movies with this, this incredible sense of awe. Like, how did anyone make this film? Cannibal Holocaust, one of the most controversial films ever made. Big influence on you. How did that come to be? Umberto Lenzi makes a movie in 1972 called Man from Deep River with Ivan Rasimov that is a ripoff of the Richard Harris film A Man Called Horse. It's a great movie with Ivan Rasimov and Mimi Leigh. But in it, there's a scene where he discovers cannibals. He runs up to a character and the character has been eaten by cannibals. That scene was so shocking that the producer said, why don't you go do a whole movie of that? And he said, no, nah, I've done it. So Ruggiero Deodato, they offer him the movie after Lindsay passes, and that becomes Ultimo Mondo Cannibale, Last Cannibal World. So Last Cannibal World, it showed these cannibal, these tribal rituals, and Deodato really, really went into the jungle of Colombia and filmed there. He filmed with real natives. And he told me, I put him as a cannibal in Hostel 2. I had him do a cameo. And he told me that the way he directed them is he would go, hut, hut, hut. 
if he wanted them to walk and then hut, 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 if he wanted them to run. And he said that they had never run before and he didn't understand how that was possible. And they said they just sit there when an animal runs by, they just dart it. They poison darts. That's how they hunted. So the idea of running, why would you? You're not running from anything. So he said their feet were all sore after the first days of shooting. The natives' feet were sore because they had never run before because they hunt with blow darts. Last Cannibal World is such a big hit that he gets offered Cannibal Holocaust. And Cannibal Holocaust changes movies. It's banned in 39 countries. Cannibal Holocaust is the first kind of found footage movie. The premise is that these kids go off, they make a movie, they're sent off in the jungle. They're these cele- It's very Italian. They're these cele- American celebrity documentary filmmakers that are college age, basically. And they've gone off into the jungle and they've disappeared. And we don't know what happened to them. So then Professor Monroe goes through and kind of retraces their steps and finds all these clues until he finally finds the skulls of the people and they're dead and there are all the film cans there. So he uses a tape recorder to go to the village. These people live in trees. And he's he like he goes to go and talk to the villagers and he gets the film. And the second half of the movie is him back in New York City watching the footage. And what he sees is shocking. He realizes that they were filming the natives who were just kind of sitting there and they start raping them and provoking them and burning down their village until the natives are like, screw this, and they just eat the kids. Cannibal Holocaust is not easy to watch, but I was surprised by how well made that picture is. What's interesting, in Italy, you apprenticed under a master director. Like Dario Argento learned directing because he was a writer on Once Upon a Time in the West under Sergio Leone. So Argento really learned a lot from Leone. Ruggiero Deodato, his two masters were Sergio Corbucci and Roberto Rossellini. So if you think about Corbucci, Corbucci's films are very, very political. Tarantino's movies are very, very influenced by Corbucci. Corbucci's referenced in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Corbucci was the one who really did the first on-screen violence with all the hundreds and hundreds of on-screen blood shots with squibs and blood exploding. Rossellini was the father of Italian neorealism. I mean, think of the violence and the realism of Rome Open City and the violence and politics of Corbucci's films, and you combine them and you get Ruggiero Deodato. And that's why Cannibal Holocaust is so effective. It's no accident. I mean, he learned, he assisted two of the masters, two master, master directors. So when you look at Michele Suave, he assisted Dario Argento. Like, there's, you can actually... Whereas in America, the assistant director is a very technical position. You're not working artistically very much with your director. And the assistant directors in America don't go on to become a director. In Italy, in Japan, in other countries, you learn to be a director by being an assistant director. Lena Wertmuller was Fellini's assistant on a movie. So, you know, Lena Wertmuller assisted Fellini before she went on and directed her her first films, The Basilisks. So... It's, it's a completely different mentality why they're making these films. But Cannibal Holocaust was so shocking that Ruggiero Deodato was brought up on murder charges. Part of the found footage was that he said, these, this is real, and these people really disappeared. So he, he, the actors actually signed agreements to disappear for a year. He had them do that. So when the movie came out, people thought that Ruggiero Deodato murdered people, and they thought they murdered villagers, and he had to bring them in. There's a girl, there's a very famous scene of a girl who's impaled with a pole going up between her legs and coming out of her mouth. It's probably the most shocking shot in the movie. There are many, many shocking. The hand abortion might be another one. But the girl impaled on the pole is one of the most shocking images of the film. It's on the poster. He had to bring that girl in and show that she was sitting on a bicycle seat and that it was a fake pole that was coming out of her mouth, made out of foam. But people thought he really killed people. So it, it became, there was a trial. I mean, these, these, 
that we were looking at a period where in England, with the video nasties, Sam Raimi is brought up on obscenity charges and threatened with going to jail for making The Evil Dead. And Ruggiero Deodato is brought in and threatened to go life in prison for making Cannibal Holocaust. So these films really had a danger about them. And of course they were banned. And once a movie is banned, of course you want to see it that much more. What is it that makes that film so special? I mean, it was marketed like a rank exploitation film and it is an exploitation film, but it somehow transcends that. Yeah, well, what elevates Cannibal Holocaust is that Rogero Deodato, when he made his movie, he really went in the jungle. It it's really feels like a true anthropological study. It feels so well-researched, and they filmed with real tribes. I mean, he went into the jungle and met people that live in trees and live in these villages and got them to be in the film and mix in with the actors. And that's why it, it feels so real. All of the rituals they do, that getting to the village, I mean, they're killing animals left, right, and center. It's, they kill so many animals in Cannibal Holocaust, the Grindhouse released a cruelty-free version, so you can play it, the DVD, with it skipping over those scenes. But that was, it, it's a movie very much of its time, but Ruggiero Deodato spends so much time on the details of the village, and there's hundreds of people and children that you really believe it's real. Cannibal Holocaust is also known for this incredible haunting score by Riz Ortolani. Ortolani is one of the great Italian composers, like Ennio Morricone, and the, his score, it just sticks with you. There's this... I could sing the whole score. Ortolani's score, it's so different from American movies, and it's kind of sad, mournful score, but it's really, really effective. The photography, you know, Deodato shoots it like a documentary. So imagine taking the realism of Roberto Rossellini and applying that to a cannibal movie. He's not making it like he's making a horror film. It's in the day. It's like he's showing you some nature documentary, almost like Jacopetti and Prosperi's Mondo Cane films. Deodato takes the Rossellini-Mondo Cane approach, and the violence is just, you can't believe what you're watching. We're seeing it through the professor's eyes. But there's a sequence in Cannibal Holocaust. They go and they see the villagers punishing this girl who has cheated on her husband. And they take this stone dildo, and they just jam it in her over and over until they murder her. And it's, it's horrifying. What Deodato does so brilliantly is that he doesn't judge the natives. He doesn't judge the characters. He just presents it like, this is what it is. This is what happens in this village with this tribe when you do this. This is a woman who wants to get rid of her baby. They hold her down and they stick their hand and they just pull out a fetus. You, you actually can't believe what you're watching because the makeup effects are so good there's another girl that is punished for adultery that is impaled on the stick. There's guys whose genitals are cut off on camera in broad daylight. This hadn't really been done before. But the reason it's called the mother of all cannibal films and the most controversial film ever made was that it looked so real. It shot in a very, very grainy documentary way. The score is so powerful, but the actors disappeared that by the time it made it kind of to home video and and circulated, there was this real legend of this tape of what is this movie? Is, are we actually watching people being killed? People had never seen that level of violence in a movie before. And it was all starring these Italian actors pretending to be American that nobody had ever heard of. It's a completely unknown cast in the movie. It's not made with stars. These people disappeared for a year and it's all so real. 
everyone thought Cannibal Holocaust was real. And this was years before Blair Witch, 15 years before Blair Witch. In there, the documentary that the kids in Cannibal Holocaust are making is called The Green Inferno. So I named my movie The Green Inferno as a nod to Cannibal Holocaust, as if this was the feature film version of that. Even though there's no connection, it's just my little tip of the hat, and I dedicated the film to Deodato. Deodato, Roger Deodato told me a great story. On, on Cannibal Holocaust, he became friends with a monkey. And he said that the monkey was going around biting everybody, but he said he'd no bite me because he know I'm the chief. And the monkey figured out that Deodato, because he's yelling at everybody, was the boss. So the monkey would go up and like stand next to Deodato and like jump on his shoulder and Deodato would direct with this monkey by his side. And he's like, and then they had to leave to go to another location. And Deodato said, he's like, and the monkey, he knows. And the monkey look at me and he know I'm leaving him. And the monkey start to cry. And then I leave. And, I, and, then he, and then he said when he was passing back through on the way going home, he went back to the jungle to look for the monkey. And he couldn't find the monkey. And he told me, I look for the monkey, but the monkey gone. And then I cry. So there's like a whole subplot of making Cannibal Holocaust where like Rogero Deodato's best friend is a monkey. That's the kind of things that happen in the jungle. And I wanted that experience when I made The Green Inferno. So you made adult horror films, very adult horror films, but you also made The House with the Clock in Its Walls. Can family-friendly horror be as subversive or even more subversive than adult horror? I think that family-friendly horror can be even more subversive than adult horror. Adult horror, it is what it is. You're there to scare the audience. You're there to shock them. The goal of a family horror movie is to scare everybody, but to get the kids into horror it becomes a gateway drug movie. Family horror is like a gateway movie. Call it gateway horror. That's the stuff you watch when you're a kid where you can give the kid a taste of what it's like to be scared in a safe way, but give them laughs and fun so that they want more. I mean, kids love macabre. They want to know about Beetlejuice. They want to know about skeletons. They want to know about death and Freddy Krueger, Pennywise. Eight-year-old kids are obsessed with horror but they know they can't see it, and it's too scary for them. You know, this is why we have fairy tales. Fairy tales is family horror. You know, look at Grimm's fairy tales that you read to three-year-olds. I mean, these are stories that are hundreds of years old, but they help kids understand the mystery of death. Kids don't understand why parents die, but these stories of witches baking children in ovens, it gives them something to be scared of so they can let it out of their system. And these stories, these morality tales, in fairy tales, and Grimm's fairy tales, they've been around for hundreds of years because kids need them. It, it's very healthy for kids to express their fear and to deal with the mystery of death. They love zombies. They love getting made up on Halloween. They love Frankenstein, someone coming back from the dead. There's something titillating about it. They get a laugh, they get a scare, but it helps them. They feel better when they let it out. And I've always said that horror films are fairy tales for adults. 
that when you're watching the slasher fantasy of what's going to happen, it's, you're, you're dealing with your fear of death in the same way that a child is dealing with their fear of death through Hansel and Gretel. But there is a middle ground. You have to go between fairy tale. You can't go right to slasher film. And that's where the PG kind of gateway horror movies come in. And for me, that was, uh, you know, it was like films like Ghostbusters and Beetlejuice and Something Wicked This Way Comes and Escape from Witch Mountain. There were movies that were made for kids that didn't try to traumatize you, that were scary and that were fun and that everybody loved watching them. You know, Jaws was a very, very, very scary movie, even though it was rated PG. But when you can make a movie that is family-friendly and scary, like Time Bandits, which has elements of horror and fantasy and fun, but has a very, very dark ending, that blew me away as a kid. Those are the movies I love the most. Like, the kid's parents blew up at the end of that movie. I thought, wow, what is this? And, you know, when, when I saw Gremlins, Gremlins was the first... And you look around today and you ask kids, what are their favorite scary movies? The only movies that they can watch really are Beetlejuice and Gremlins. There are very, very few films. PG-13 is a little too intense for an eight-year-old. Abbott and Costello Me Frankenstein is the first one because you have the monsters, but there's also Abbott and Costello there. But in Abbott and Costello Me Frankenstein, those monsters will kill you. They're not, the monsters aren't a joke. Abbott and Costello are telling jokes, but the monsters will really kill you. The Invisible Man will kill you. Like all of those 1940s monsters, the monster was played straight. Frankenstein, Dracula. These are the movies you started to watch. So what were the modern versions of those? Well, it really, Joe Dante's Gremlins, because they're fun and mischievous and scary and insane. You got to put them in a blender and they will kill you. Those Gremlins will mess you up. Something Wicked This Way Comes. Jonathan Price was really, really great. I remember that was a PG movie and it, it was very scary. Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice is fun and it's weird and it's strange and there's a little bit of danger to him. So with The House with a Clock in Its Walls, I wanted to make a movie that the parents are really, really into horror and maybe their kid is too scared to watch it or any of these films because they're too young. But you take them to a movie like House with a Clock in Its Walls and there's a good lesson at the end. It's fun, but it's creepy and spooky and it lets the kids get scared. And when Isaac pops out of the grave, kids scream. And they were in the theater with other kids screaming. And then there's a huge collective laugh because everyone's laughing because the kids are screaming. And even the kids who screamed are laughing. But by the end, it feels good. You have a little gross humor. You have a little fun. You don't want to traumatize the kids. You want them to be excited. You want them to go, okay, now I'm ready for something a little bit harder. You, okay, I've did one, I've, it's level one roller coaster ride. Now we're going to go on the more advanced one. Is scary stories to tell in the dark maybe a level two? Yeah, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark is level two. It's PG-13. The kids are teenagers. That's for like if you're 12, 13, 14, 15. It's going to be scary. It's not going to be too scary. It's not going to be too violent, but it's going to be a creepy movie. But I wanted to make a movie that was pure PG because I felt like no one was doing it. It feels like a very underserved audience for people with little kids that love scary. And that's our interview with Italian film enthusiast Eli Roth. Join us next time when our guest will be Andre Overdahl. And be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Sayanga, produced by Kurt Sayanga, engineered by Chris Heckman, with music by Maestro Joseph Bashara. For Oddity, Jessica Bastilos Heckman and Lacey Oglevoy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. 
The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayanga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior producer Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Kelly Nash, Richard Drew, Chris Powers, and most valuable player Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Sayanga for Eli Roth's History of Horror Uncut. <laughs>